1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll begin reading at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I may by all means save some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race will all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. What we saw last week from this text was that the Christian life is like a race and like a fight. Living the Christian life is like running and like boxing. But even more important, what we saw is that the way we run and the way we fight makes a difference in whether we seize the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. The way we run, the way we fight makes a difference in whether we obtain the crown of righteousness. The way we live, the way we fight makes a difference in whether or not we are disqualified or obtain a share in the gospel. In other words, life is serious. Life is not a game with no lasting consequences. The way we live it, the way we run it, the way we fight it has eternal consequences. This life, whether it's 10 years or 70 years or 90 years is a proving ground. It's a proving ground where we prove who we are, whom we trust, and whom we cherish. It's a proving ground for showing and demonstrating who we are and who we trust and who we cherish. Everything in your life is revealing, revealing, revealing who you trust and who you are. Now, I want us to make no mistake here, and so let me clarify some negatives about this text. Life is not a place for proving to God or to anybody else your strength. Life is a place for proving the strength of the person that you trust. If you choose to trust yourself, this life will be a proving ground for self-strength. 
If you choose to trust God, this life will prove your trust for God. It is a proving ground, not for your strength, but for the strength of the one you trust. That's the demonstration that this life is about. This life is not a place for proving the power of your intelligence to know truth. This life is a proving ground for demonstrating the grace and power and intelligence of the one who reveals truth and his ability to reveal it with power into your life so powerfully that it opens your mind to it. God's revelatory power to reveal truth, not your intelligence to grasp truth, is what is being proven on the racetrack of this life. Life is not a field or a proving ground for demonstrating the force of your will to choose well. It's a field for showing the beauty of Christ and His power to so ravish and master your heart and your will as to constrain with His love your choices. It is not a proving ground for the power of your will. It is a proving ground for whether he was beautiful enough to ravish your will into his will. So don't confuse the nature of the race. The race of life has eternal consequences not because we are saved by works, but because Christ has saved us from dead works to to serve the living and true God with Olympic passion. You demonstrate salvation as you strain toward the prize. The race of life has eternal consequences not because grace is nullified by the way we run, but because grace is verified by the way we run. 1 Corinthians 15.10 By the grace of God, the grace, grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored, I ran, I fought more than any of them. Nevertheless, It was not I that was working, not I that was running, not I that was fighting, but the grace of God that was in me. When I run a race for the prize set before me, my running does not nullify grace, it verifies grace. This is a grace race. And if you think that grace makes you sit down, you don't know biblical grace. It is a grace race. Eternal life hangs on the way we run and the way we fight, not because salvation is the merit of works, but because faith without works is dead. Life is a proving ground for whether your faith is alive or dead. The race proves the life of the faith or the deadness of the faith. Now let me drive this home by taking you to Philippians 3.12. And I'm going to take you with me this time. I went over too fast last week. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, please, with me. And circle it, underline it, asterisk it, 
Snip it out if you must and paste it on the doorposts of your house because it is the key to the Christian life. And I bring it in, I believe, legitimately into this text in 1 Corinthians 9 because the sequence of thought is exactly the same and the terminology is the same. We're on the wavelength of Paul here in Philippians 3. Now the point of this text in verse 12 is this. Paul is making explicit the relationship between running in order to obtain, which makes life serious, and running because we've been obtained, which makes life secure. Now let me say that again, because I'll tell you, the devil does not want you to understand these two things. The devil this morning wants you to say, it cannot be both. I will not have a Bible with those two things in it. I will choose the one or the other. God puts them together, and what God has joined together, let not the devil put asunder. Paul is explaining the relationship between running, striving, pressing, in order to obtain, which makes life serious, with running and straining and pressing because we've been obtained, which makes life secure. It has to be both or it isn't biblical. Let's read it. Not that I have already obtained, and it's referring to the resurrection in the previous verse, not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on, I press on in my race, I press on in order that I might lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. That is great. I could, I could develop the same thought from Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for He is the one who is in you to work out His will and good pleasure in your life. Same thought exactly. Now, this is utterly unique. This means that the Christian life is different from all other religions. There are a lot of religions who have races. There are a lot of religions who say you better run to obtain. The Muslims say run to obtain. Judaism says run to obtain. But when Paul says run to obtain, don't cancel it out because others say it. See it in its larger biblical context, which we have right here in this verse. He says, when we run, we look forward to it and strain to obtain it. And what we see at the end is not the judge Christ merely scrutinizing how we run, leaving us to our own strength to make it and demonstrate our power and our intellect and our will. And if we fall saying, well, I guess you didn't have the strength and you didn't have the wisdom and the intelligence, that is not the way to look towards the prize. The way you look towards the prize is that you see Jesus and all over him 
and in his bloody hands and side and feet, what he did back here at the beginning of the race that set you on the race, holds you up in the race, forgives you on the way in the race, empowers you for the race. You have been obtained for that for which you reach. And the power that you use in reaching for it is the power of having been obtained for it. Here's the way it's spoken in Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And then the writer makes very clear the way we're to see Jesus as we run. With our eyes on Jesus, the author and per perfecter of our faith. He began our faith. He'll end our faith. He sustains our faith. You see that back in 1 Corinthians 1, 8, 2. The author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's involved in this race from the beginning. He ran it before us. In fact, that's what he says next. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne. When we look to the prize, we see one who already got the victory and summons us to run the way he ran. And that's what this text is about. How did Jesus run? If you think that Jesus ran his race so that you don't have to run the race, you don't know biblical religion. And I'll tell you, he ran with tremendous zeal and pain. We run to obtain eternal life because we have been obtained by Christ for eternal life. And the running is the proof that we have been obtained. Don't forget last spring. Don't forget the messages on the foundations for full assurance. Let me summarize the spring for you. You have been obtained by divine election before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. You have been obtained by predestination to adoption, Ephesians 1.5. You have been obtained by the reconciling death of the Son while you were yet sinners, Romans 5.6. You have been obtained by regeneration and effectual calling, 1 Corinthians 1.24. You have been obtained by the indwelling and the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. All of that before you took any initiatives at all to get on the track. Don't forget the Bible when you read a text. And understand that there is harmony. Don't cancel texts. Don't say, he really can't mean run in order to obtain it. He really can't hold out the possibility that he himself could be disqualified. On the basis of this massive work of God to obtain us, he calls us now to run, in verse 24, run that you may obtain the prize, namely the prize for which you have been obtained. He did not save you to sit in the stands. He did not save you to lie on the track. He did not save you to sit on the edge of the pool and dangle your feet in the water. He saved you to run. That's why you've been saved. The whole point of the Bible is your life is to glorify God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, 
Sit on your hands. That's not what it says. It says, you were, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your bodies. That's what this text is about. A life devoted to the glory of God because we have been obtained for that very purpose. How then should we run? Verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Now, the point of saying that only one in a race wins the prize is not to say only one Christian gets to heaven. In fact, as, it was, as I was thinking about this, it hit me. This is, this is so wonderful. The Christian running, the Christian race, the Christian fight is radically different from the Olympic races precisely because one of the rules of the race of the Christian life is that you have to help other people finish. Hebrews 3.13 Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. You must help people finish this race. If you see somebody stumbling beside you and you're a step in front of them, you stop. Right? And you put your arm under them and you carry them across with you. So the point of this text is not only one person gets the prize. What's the point then? Why does he even mention that? What, what, it seems like he's kind of leading us down a wild goose chase to say only one gets the prize. The point is, run like the one who gets the prize. I think that's the point. In, in the Olympic races, the person who gets the prize is putting out the most, and he says, now run like that. Run so as to obtain. Run like the winner. How does the winner run? And the answer is the winner runs hard. He gives everything he has to this race for the prize. Paul said in Romans 12.10, Never flag in zeal. Be aglow, boil literally, in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Zeal, fervency, not lazy, not idle, not sluggish, not unconcerned, not indifferent, passionate, red hot, not lukewarm, that's the way winners run. That's the way Christians live their lives. Jonathan Edwards lived 270 years ago, was in college 270 years ago at Yale University, and he wrote 70 resolutions as a young man to help stir him up to run his race. One of the resolutions, I think it's the shortest one probably, captures, I believe, the spirit of verse 24. It says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. It's the practical outworking of the great commandment, isn't it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. Or Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Now, this is just all over the place in the New Testament. Let me just give you a smattering so that you can feel 
what Paul is calling us to, this zeal that he's calling us to in the Christian life. Strive to enter by the narrow gate. Labor for the food that endures to eternal life. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let us not grow weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we do not faint. Redeem the time, for the days are evil. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Christ gave himself to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. Have you ever thought that when you are not zealous for good deeds, you are striving against the purpose for which he died for you? He gave himself to purify for himself a people zealous for good deeds. He died for your zeal. If you do not have zeal, you strive against his blood. He died for your zeal. He died for your zeal, for your passion, for your earnestness. Show earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope. Love one another earnestly from the heart. So you've got all these words all over the place. The tip of the iceberg in the New Testament. Strive, labor, abound, be zealous, be earnest. Run like the winner runs. No half-heartedness, no laziness, no lukewarmness. And it is not in your own strength. For if it were, you'd get the glory. And the whole point of life is that God gets the glory. Therefore, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. 1 Peter 4, 11. That's verse 24. And I think it's a call for Christian zeal. Run that you may obtain. Run like the one who finishes and wins. Verse 25 spells out some of the Specifics about the way a runner keeps himself in condition for running. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Everyone who competes exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it, that is, exercise self-control in all things, to obtain an imperishable wreath. Now Galatians 5.22 says that self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And the word is the same. It's the same word. Enkratuomai is the verb. Enkrataya. Now that's very interesting. Self-control is the last of the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit. Which means that self-control does not mean self-control. It means spirit control. Now, the reason self-control is probably a pretty good translation, even though in the Greek there's no word for self, is because we always experience it as an exertion of our will. Always. When impulses arise that must be resisted, we experience that resistance as something that we exert. We say no. And yet, Paul says it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. How can it be? How is it that when you exert your will to control a negative impulse, it is the work of God 
It is so when three things happen. Number one, when you believe the promise that self-denial will gain more joy than indulgence. When you believe that. Two, when you trust the power of the Holy Spirit to help you follow through on that belief. And third, when in all of that you are seeking the glory of God and not the glory of your own strength or will or intelligence. When those three things are true, it is the work of the Holy Spirit when you succeed in resisting a negative impulse. And therefore, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is saying here that there are impulses that we have to control if we're going to run like a winner, if we're going to receive the crown of righteousness. The impulses that you have to control are the impulses that weaken zeal for God. The impulses that weaken your zeal for God. In my family, I try to, to tell the boys as they're growing up, and they have to ask different things about right and wrong. Television or music or movies or drugs or alcohol or whatever standards there are that you've got to ask questions about. You've got to decide how you're going to live. I always say, don't ask the main question, what's wrong with it? Don't ask that question. That's a minimalist question. Runners who want to win don't ask, what's the minimum training? They don't ask that question. They ask, what behavior will maximize my zeal for God? That's the question to ask about rock music. That's the question to ask about television and ads on television. That's the question to ask about leisure. That's the question to ask about spending money. What actions, behaviors, habits will maximize my zeal for God, will intensify my prayer life, will cause me to taste more of His Word and love Him more, will make me more passionate for purity and holiness? What things in my life have that effect on me and what things drag me down, innocent though they look? Now, I know coming off of, of uh, vacation and watching enough television that, that I have made a decision that is right for me and for us not even to have one. I cannot grow spiritually and watch television. I cannot. Now, that's just a comment on this man's weakness, okay? And all I'm talking about is the ads the assault on my sexual life by the ads drags me down so far, pulls me out of the heavenlies where I want to live that I cannot do it. I cannot. If you can, you are free. You are free to watch in Christ. But mark it. God is calling you not to minimalist. What can I do and still be a Christian? And there are many other applications. The Christian takes note of what impulses drag him down, pull him out of heaven, make him not want to pray, make him not want to read the Bible, make him have impure thoughts, and he strikes them out of his life. That's what self-control here is all about. And, and bringing it to a close now, Paul gets very severe, doesn't he, with himself and models for us just what he means by self-control in verses 26 and 27. Starting in the middle of verse 26, I box in such a way as not beating the air. 
but I buffet, I pommel, I beat my body and make it my slave. The body is not evil. Hear that? The body is God's creation. It will be raised from the dead. It will be glorified. We will live with it forever. It will no longer, however, be the base of operations for sin, which it is now. The body is a base of operations that enables sin to give rise to impulses that are negative and hurtful and unspiritual and drag us down. The body is good. It becomes the base of operations for sin and thus gives rise to impulses that must be denied. And therefore, Paul says, when he exercises self-control, it is like boxing. And the enemy, the gold last night in the boxing, wasn't there? The enemy to be hit is the body. You see that contrast between the last part of verse 26 and verse 27? I don't rear back and miss my enemy and hit the air. I connect and the, the body is what I connect with. The, the word literally means hit under the eye. Blacken the eye. He means that I will not be mastered by its appetites, its impulses, its cravings, its lethargy. The body is for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.13 And Paul means he will take it captive and make it serve the Lord. He's speaking here in the spirit of Jesus, isn't he? Remember what Jesus said? If your right eye offend you or cause you to sin through lust, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, stealing, greed, abuse, whatever, cut it off. That's exactly what Paul is saying. I pommel my body that I might not be disqualified because Jesus says it's better to go with one eye to heaven than two eyes to hell. With one hand to heaven than with two hands to hell. They are talking exactly the same language. Matthew 5.32, 1 Corinthians 9.27. It's the same language. Now, gouging out the eye and cutting off the hand solves no problems. All right, let's make this clear lest anybody go out and do something crazy. There are, there are crazy people in the world who have, in fact, lived ascetic lives in such a way as to think that the gouging out of an eye or the cutting off of the hand takes away lust and takes away greed. Impossible. You've got the left eye. How does it help to gouge out the right eye when you've got the left eye to look at the magazines with? The point is not that gouging out the left eye takes away lust. The point is, take the battle that seriously. Do whatever you have to do that seriously to stop lust. And I can tell you, gouging out your eyes won't do it. Cutting off your hand won't take away covetousness. Or if you're abusive, it won't stop abusiveness. The point is, get as serious as an Olympic runner and get as serious as an Olympic boxer and do whatever has to be done, a la Neil Anderson, or whatever route works for you, in order to end the, the slavery to sin through the body. Now, let me close with a little bit of application here to Bethlehem. This is tremendously relevant to us in the mission of this church. There are days of suffering coming in the church of America. 
The price of faithfulness to the Word of God is rising every day in a worldly church and in a secular hostile society. The price is rising for faithfulness to the Word of God. Mark it, before you are dead, you will see, as we already are seeing, significant suffering of the Christian church in America. And add to that that Christ calls us not only to bear witness to the truth of God's Word here in this increasingly secular, hostile society, but to take the gospel to the darkest, most satanic, covered peoples in the world. And that is not going to happen without martyrs. It's not going to happen without martyrs among our own number. Now, that's what this text is about in context. Paul's labors that people might be saved. He'll go anywhere. He'll do anything at any cost if any might be saved. Now, picture this. He has been beaten 39 lashes four times in his life till now. He's on the outskirts of a city. He knows that there's a synagogue in the city. It is full of people he loves and wants saved. My heart's desire and prayer to God is that you might be saved. And he knows that almost every time he preaches, they get angry and run him out of the city or stone him or beat him. And he's out on the outskirts of the city, breathing in his marathon of life. And his body says, no way am I going in there. I've had it. I'm not going in there. Look at my back. What is four times 39? I didn't even add it up. Do you see this? It's been turned into jelly four times. And I've shaken with fever all night long in prisons for weeks on end. And you're telling me you're going into that town again? No. That's what the body says. You know that. Your body talks like this. My body talks like this, whether it's getting up early or going to bed late or visiting somebody or crossing my comfort zone to help. The body says no. And you know what Paul does? He bows his head and he remembers that those who lose their life will gain it. And he believes that promise. He turns to the Holy Spirit and he says, I can't do this in my own. Help me, please. He looks up to the Father and he says, I live for your glory. It's all I want. Your glory and the salvation of some of those people. And he turns around and he hits his body like that. That's what he says. I didn't make that up. That's not a pastoral illustration. He hits his body in the face. And he says, no, you shut up. We're going in there. You are my slave. I am not your slave, body. That's the way a Christian talks to his body sometimes. You don't always have to be that rough on your body. I could give you some other texts like 1 Corinthians 4 where all things good are created to be eaten and enjoyed. There's a place for pleasure. There may be a place for fun in the Mall of America. I'm not sure. But mark it, in this text... I hope you all hear a call to find the place in your life for hitting the body in the face when it says no. 
I'm not going to do that. And you say, yes, you are. If we don't learn this lesson of self-denial, we may drift away from the painful pathway of love, and we may drift away from the costly course of missionary obedience, and God may pass us by and do his triumphant work without us. But if we keep our eyes on the prize, and if we exult in the truth that we have been obtained for this prize by the blood of Jesus, and if we bank on the promise of his help and his sustaining grace in the race and in the fight, then we will run with power, and the mission will be completed, and the world will see our good deeds and give glory to our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough word from the Apostle Paul. It's got tough images in it like boxing, not missing, but hitting, pommeling our own bodies. And Lord, I pray that you would put it in the heart of every person to hear this tough word in its biblical context. I believe the Lord laid on my heart early this morning to just stress that the prayer teams that are here now for the next 15 minutes or so between the services are here mainly to pray with you about discipline and self-control in your lives. I think the Lord wants many of you to, to seek out people to pray with you now. There's not a person in this room who cannot improve. I certainly can. And that's the race. The race is improvement. The race is not perfection. Not that I have already obtained, nor am already perfect, Paul said. The point is wanting to fight and wanting to run as well as we can. So I think the Lord is calling you to seek prayer concerning self-control and discipline in those areas where your zeal is depleted rather than strengthened. So, Father, I pray that you would lead us all forward in this great and glorious life. What an awesome thing. If the Olympics today come to a climax with great fall to all, how we should exult in our running and in our fighting in the strength of the Lord. Thank you for obtaining us. Thank you for the prize that we will inherit. Help us to run in Jesus' name. Amen.